Hello, everyone, and welcome to the pilot episode of Indie Comics Spotlight, the show where we spend time looking at an ongoing series or graphic novel from a company other than the big two. The hope here is that we can take a deep dive in an indie comic that you may have missed or give you a chance to talk about one of your favorites with us on social media afterward. I'm your host, Tony Farina of DC Comics News. I've been reading comics since I was 12, and while I love a good superhero battle, I gravitate towards indie comics and standalone graphic novels because they give artists a chance to connect with readers in a different way and tell stories that they may not be able to tell with traditional comics or traditional novels. My guests today are Chris Phelps and Dave Horrocks of Comics in Motion. Fellas? Hello. Hey there, Tony. Thanks for having us on. Hey, thanks for coming up with this idea. Uh, I'm really excited about that. So uh, the the comic today that we're going to discuss is I Kill Giants, which was a standalone comic from Image. It first appeared on July 1st, 2008. It was written by Joe Kelly and Ken Namira. Now, the cool thing about Image Comics is that the writers and artists actually own their own stuff. So they pitch an idea and they have to come to Image Comics and say, we have this entire thing and they decide to run it or not run it. So the fact that this was seven issues was completely random. Some, some series from Image could be as short as four. Sometimes it's just a standalone one shot that's 40 pages. And so this is the story that Joe and Ken wanted to tell. And we luckily have it now. Um, in 2008, uh, after it was released as a uh, collection, it actually won the best indie comic of 2008 by IGN. It was voted one of the best 10 comics of 2009 by New York Magazine. And it won the Young Adult Library Association top 10 graphic novels for teens. And in this, I don't understand, actually, in 2012, it won the fifth International Manga Award. So it must have taken four years for it to finally get released internationally. And that's why it won in 2012. So that's a little bit, it's, it's obviously highly regarded. So I'll do a little bit of history and then we'll start talking. So um, I Kill Giants follows the adventures of Barbara Thorson, a young fifth grader who lives on Long Island, New York. Uh, she's trying to stop an invasion of giants from destroying her community. She lives with her sister, Karen, her brother, Dave. She doesn't have a lot of friends. Uh, she finally does make one called Sophia. She has a, an arch rival called Taylor who has a band of unnamed cronies. Um, and she is befriended by the school guidance counselor, Mrs. Mole. So guys, that is what it is. Tell me what you thought your first overall impressions of I Kill Giants. Dave. You're the comic guy. You go first. <laughs> so I, I must be transparent as well. So a bit like yourself, you know, I've been reading comics from, from the 80s. I must confess, you know, most of that time I gravitated towards Marvel. I remember having plenty of Justice League comics as well. I think I remember a couple of episodes ago on the movie reviews and, and TV reviews, we were discussing that I thought Firestorm was just the best character I'd ever seen. Um, but as soon as I became a little bit more aware of the stories, I gravitated towards the Chris Claremont X-Men and it was all that drama and interaction. So I think... You know, I haven't really, I, I did get into a bit of the 2000 AD, you know, being British, you kind of have to, <laughs> and, and especially when you get there? a bit, That's, I think okay. so, yeah, That's especially fair. when you get a bit older, I mean, things like, obviously, Judge Dredd, he's the poster child, but then you've got Rogue Trooper, he, he was my personal favorite, 
Now, probably in my adult life, I probably stepped away from comics a bit. And it was more around kind of 2007, 2008, I really got back into it. But still really kept to my original roots, probably kept to more Marvel, more DC. And it's only been over time. You know, obviously I was aware of the whole image revolution, you know, in the 90s. And and hopefully at some point we'll go back and and get into a deeper dive on that because it's fascinating. It absolutely was revolutionary for the whole industry. But as, you know, from 2008 kind of onwards, although I've had started off going back to Marvel then, definitely there are so many great, independent comics out there and there's more than i'll ever have time to read and so to be honest i this one completely passed me by because it was it was at that time where it was my jumping back on point with comics um so it kind of it had already been and gone by the time you know i I was kind of looking at the indie comics so when we started talking about this one Never heard of it. I knew Joe Kelly, but again, more because of what he'd done with Deadpool and the Uncanny X-Men. And so when I picked it up, honestly, my mind was blown because this, what I'd known, Joe Kelly, I I don't know if a lot of people, so Rob Liefeld is obviously uh, credited as the creator for Deadpool, but that was more about the look. And it was basically, it was was uh, Deathstroke. That's right. Slade Wilson. Same name even, yeah. Different coloring. So, you know, but it was Joe Kelly who shaped the quirkiness of that character. So that, that was what I'd kind of pigeonholed Joe Kelly as being. And so to get this emotionally powerful, you know, seven, seven issue run, I honestly, Tony, my mind was blown and I'm so glad that you suggested it because I, I, everyone needs to read this book. Yeah, I agree. Well, that's great. Awesome. I'm glad to hear that. And Chris, I know you're not, you, you were saying before off show, uh, you're not, you, you know, you read comics more when you were younger. So you went back and read this, which I appreciate that you took the time to do that. So what were your first thoughts? And then we'll get into some more deep dives with it. I must admit the first, cause obviously I've read these seen seven parts. I've read the first couple of panels, first couple of pages. I was like, Oh, this seems a bit too childish for me in some respects. I think that the, the drawing style of it's great. It feels like, cause I used to, I mean, honestly, I'm not an amazing cartoon drawer, but when I was a kid, I used to spend hours and hours just drawing cartoons and copying cartoons. And I had books full of them. I used to write my own panels and do little comics and everything. And I'd spend hours reading old school English sort of British comics, but it was all like slapstick, stupid sort of uh, preteen comics. I used to be religiously buying them. I've said it before on the comics emotion, the dandy and the beano. So when we've done, our write-ups and we've had guests on who, who have been in the comic world and you know the artists the creators I've actually enjoyed it but I don't pick it up enough so I wasn't sure what to to, to make of it and I actually saw this in reverse so I watched the movie first and then read the comics and I must admit having read the comics or the graphic novels as they're called it tells a better story than what I saw on the tv screen and I think the art style is fantastic. And some of the so subtle images of Barbara on her own in isolation, I know we're going to get into that. It's really, really, uh, and I mean this sincerely, I didn't think I'd enjoy it because like when Dave's, David already said to me, it's quite emotional before I read it. And I was thinking, 
I'm not going to get emotional about it because I just don't, it won't get me. But it did because I kept thinking, and Dave's right, and you're both right, is somebody who's a teen growing up or has, they, they need to read this because it's more about isolation and stuff in it and how people cope with certain things in the life trauma. So yeah, very powerful. And I actually really, really enjoyed it, to be honest. And I'm, I'm not just saying that because Ronnie, I did. I was quite surprised. So yeah, I, again, Tony, brilliant choice. Good. I'm glad that makes, I'm, I'm really had, glad to hear it. My um, experience with this, I actually did not read it when it first came out either. I heard about it. I don't even know what I was listening to, but somebody who was on a show I was listening to said something, blah, blah, blah. I kill giants. That's one of my favorite comics ever. So I just went and found it. Um, I shared the, the greatest invention of the digital age in my comic life is a thing called Hoopla Digital, where you can get free comics, digital comics from the library. So I went and it was there. And so I downloaded it and I was actually on a plane and you're talking about isolation on a plane by myself, uh, (laughs) flying from Michigan to Florida. And I read this and in its entirety. And so there's nothing quite like, you know, what's wrong with that weird guy sitting in the back row by himself, sobbing into his Kindle. Um, so that was the first way I saw it. I thought it was, and it was, and I honestly think your, your talk about being isolationist is the fact that I was alone when I read it. I mean, you know, when you're on a plane, you're around all these other people, but you're not really, you know, like I put my headphones on and try to not touch anybody. Yeah. Um, so I really do try to isolate myself and it was, it was an interesting place to do it. And then after that, then the movie came out and uh, I was, you know, pretty excited. And I know we'll talk about that later. So that was my first foray into it no that's really good and it's it's interesting what you say about the manga award as well because that art style and because this is a black and white comic as well isn't it again that's quite makes some of the i think that art style and and i I don't want to call it juvenile but you know it is more mangary isn't it but i think the fact that it's such a, a serious um subject you know, I, I really like Mouse, and I'm sure we'll we'll talk about that at some point. And, and again, that, there's something in my brain that triggers in the same way that, you know, the the kind of almost childlike art style played off against that really serious subject, you know, and, and storyline. It, it's a weird thing, and, and I completely agree with Chris. I think I, I was in quite a... I wasn't in a happy-go-lucky mood, but, you know, at certain points in your life, we all get, you know, we all have ups and downs and whatever. I think if I'd have read this when I was on a particularly down moment, I'd have been a blubbering mess, to be honest. So, you know, it 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 did really make me think, and, and it's one of those that it's so powerful that you end up thinking about it and contemplating it long after you've put the book down. And I think that's probably the best thing that I can say about this book. Yeah, well, let's let's talk about that. Let's let's um, start with what I think. Um, you know, let's let's talk about the characters. So our our main character is Barbara Thorson, which I, I've always assumed that um, because she wields a hammer and her name was Thorson, that was intentional. I, mm-hmm. I guess I, I I didn't I don't know Joe Kelly, but that's my guess. Um, so Barbara Thorson, one hundred percent believes that there are giants. She. Um, carries around this little heart-shaped purse that has her Warhammer Kovaleski in it. And, um, you know, what do you guys think about Barbara in general? I know, Chris, you already talked about her, 
her being isolated. Um, how did you, what did you think about her and that whole, you know, this is, this is set in modern time when people have phones and understand, I mean, it was written in 2008 and it takes place then. So the fact that here's this 12 year old girl who believes in giants, you know, what, what do you think about that? I, th- I think from a parent, my daughter's 19 and, and she had her struggles at school, Tony, and, and something that and I'm happy to share this, I think what's stuck with me is I remember starting secondary school and, and she's not one to talk and communicate with people very well. And she just said about three weeks being at school, she just burst into tears and went, I'm just stood around talking to, uh, not talking to anybody. I'm just stood there. And I was, and I never forget as a dad thinking that is one of the worst things you could probably tell me because I could just couldn't do anything to help her, you know, and uh, reading this and I kept, all I kept doing all the way through was comparisons to my daughter thinking, you know, what she must've gone through that, you know, at school at certain points in a sort of uh, adolescent life. And uh, yeah, I think that's, I think probably different because I'm a parent. If I'd read it when I was, 13 or 14, I may have been, I know it sounds bad, but I've been thinking, oh, that's that strange kid in the class, you know, who has uh, autism or dyspraxia, uh, dyspraxia uh, and that. I, I know that especially, do you know what I mean? And I know friends as well who've got kids who don't suffer with it. So it's interesting how as you get older, you have more of an understanding. And I saw it completely from a compassionate side reading this. I found it really, really uh, powerful, to be honest. Yeah, Dave, I agree. I agree because I'm a parent too and I have daughters. So I totally, I feel the same way. It's like you, you want to just give her a hug and you don't know how to help her. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, what stood out, you know, she, she doesn't seem to feel sorry for herself, does she? She's very confident. She's very bolshy, you know, and single-minded as well. She doesn't really have time for friends. It's not like she's particularly, I mean, she, she does come across as a bit quirky, obviously, when you're looking from someone else's perspective. But as far as she's concerned, you know, she's just, she's just on a mission. And everything else is just a bit of an inconvenience to her. So things like friendships, you know, are just secondary because she has this very important mission, you know, to kill these giants. And so I, I really, really, from, from that first issue, really warmed to Barbara. Yeah. And I think she's, um, she is definitely, we, I think we, the readers, and I think you make a great point, Chris, we're, she, we, she's not our avatar, right? Depending on how old you are. So we're either going to um, more associate with either Karen or with Mrs. Molay, the, uh, Karen, her sister, Mrs. Molay, the, the therapist. We're, we're going to see Barbara through that lens um, as opposed to from the lens of, you know, what a 12-year-old would see her like you're saying, Chris, you'd be like that weird girl with the bunny ears. Although no one mentions the bunny ears. Um, no one, no one says anything like what's up with the ears. They do later in the movie, but they don't ever hear it all. Um, so what did you, what did you guys think about that? That these other characters are kind of our avatars. Did you relate to one of them more to Karen or to Mrs. Molay more? And how did you think, um, they did with expressing their concern where at any point in time, did you want to like shake Karen or, you know, yell at any of the adults in this book? Dave, you go first. Okay. Sorry. So, it's interesting. I mean, I've only gone through the through the book once. Um, I don't know. I, I think I did kind of put myself in Barbara's perspective. You know, she is the, we won't spoil it till, till a bit later, but she's the unreliable narrator, isn't she? And, and you know, you've got uh, 
obviously played by Zoe Zaldana in the in the movie you've got the therapist there and she's a bit of an annoyance she's like she's wanting to talk about all these cuddly things and feelings and stuff and it's like but she's got to go out there and kill giants and stuff what, what are you talking about you know so I think it's it's only really I mean as we get through to I think it's about issue three when her sister who is again I you know <laughs> I don't want to say it's like Sixth Sense, but it is a little bit like Sixth Sense, where I think I want to go back through the book again and read it again with the hindsight, you know, and sort of see all the bits. But when I think back, it was about issue three, where her sister, elder sister, sort of holding the family together. She's talking, but you can't actually see what she's saying. Right, it's all blacked out. It's all blacked out. And so, you know, clearly Barbara, she just, people are speaking to her, but she doesn't want to hear it. And again, just such a, such a powerful thing to use that comics medium in that way to communicate exactly what's going on there. I think it's just absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I, th- I think, uh, to be honest, Tony, I think what Dave is he's pretty much speaking for me. I think we've, by the sounds of it at the moment, we're quite parallel and similar in how we thought it. I literally saw the whole thing from Barbara's perspective and also be, you know, we've all been there. We've all been uh, children, ad- adolescents as we're growing up where you felt isolated and lonely as we go going up. At the moment, I'm actually part of a massive loneliness initiative at worst. I'm doing some filming and that to try and get it out there for all the big macho men that I work with, you know, and, uh, I mean, that sounds a bit weird, that, the macho men. It's, there is a song about Are that. But there is. Yeah, yeah, the butch. <laughs> one's a cowboy, one's a cop. Wow. Um, is there an Indian one's in the there? Navy. Indian, yeah. One's in the Navy, Tony, yeah. But, yeah. Um, <laughs> we have all the fun. Uh, but anyway, yeah. no, I, I am like part of that initiative. So I think this is where, this is something that really struck a chord with me. And I, I feel that the sister... She's under so much stress because we don't really reveal what happens, why she's in that situation. She alludes to the fact that the dad has abandoned them. And obviously there's a mention of like the stairway and stuff like that. And then it's only later on in the chapters we get the realisation it's about the mother. Because I must admit, and I know we're going to talk about this when we do our review on the movie, but uh, I did actually ring Dave and say, so was this whole thing real or is it just in her imagination as as a sort of... Uh, a coping mechanism. But when you actually read the graphic novel, it explains it so much better. The, the whole story runs really well because in the movie, they change things around towards the end. So, yeah, I just saw it completely from Barbara and I thought the characters are great supporting characters, but I wasn't invested in them as much as what Barbara was doing. I needed her on each panel more than anything. And even uh, her friend, Sophia, like she's there, but I don't think she's, as, to be fair, I think it flips. Like, I think she, there's more impact of her character in the movie than in the panels. But I think Barbara is brilliant all the way through this. Yeah, no, she's, ex- she's excellent. I love her for sure. And I just, I, I think for me, um, trying to see it from the perspective of these people who want to help Barbara. And I think you're right, you know, Dave, she's definitely an unreliable narrator. And, and one of the things, and I think, you know, this will, so this will dovetail right, into that, what I think is, and I, I'm from what I've read, this was Ken Nomura's ad, the sprites that Barbara sees um, that are just mm-hmm. all around her yeah. all the time. Um, it's in those moments where you're just blown away by this amazing book, but also 
that's when I could like step back and be like, wow, there's, she's, she is emotionally a little broken while it's, while it's delightful. And there's a lot of, of, of Matt, like literally she's surrounded by magic, but the fact that she's seen mm-hmm. these things, which are clearly not there. Um, that's where I could, you know, uh, for me, as I'm reading it, you know, rooting for um, Mrs. Molay to really help her because nobody else can. And you're right, Chris, mm-hmm. Karen is unable to, she's doing everything she can. She's, um, you feel bad for her as much as anybody. She didn't ask for this. These aren't her children. Her Barbara's not her problem, but she is because she's a great person. Um, you know, and I, you know, she, she just steps up when she doesn't have to. So for me, um, that was the one thing when you see those sprites, the first time you see that you understand, Oh damn, <laughs> she's, she's got something going on um, with her that, that I felt I wanted her to get that help and started to, to see it from the adult perspective a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think, I think it's quite interesting what you said, Dave, about when the certain parts of the story towards sort of like the middle uh, section of the chapters, maybe about chapter four or five, we start getting this blanked out uh, dialogue where it's just like someone scribbled through it with a pen, which is great. Yeah. It's like when you, when you're trying to create something like this, or you're drawing yourself as, as I did many times as a kid, you put a bit of dialogue there and think, Oh God, that's terrible. You know? And then you'd, you'd, so I think that's brilliant because it sort of stops her inner thoughts coming out of, you know, and, I, and that's what I was gauging that instead of a carrying on with the rant at Barbara or the rant at life in general, because obviously they've been dealt this hand, this, this really bad hand at the moment that it's, it's sort of going to in a monologue. And that's where this, this blacked out writing gone. That's what I got. I thought it was really good. It's where her way of stopping herself saying something she regrets. Yeah, I think that's I think that's uh, really keen insight. Yeah, Dave, you look like you're going to say something. I think, you know, I don't know whether I like Sophia or not, though. <laughs> that's fair. Talk she about did. that. Well, so she seems normal, you know. And again, so I guess against the contrast of Barbara, because when when you start any story, it's world building, isn't it? So you don't really know, are you, are you reading a fantasy novel where you've got fairies at the bottom of the garden or what have you? Or are you reading something where there's, there's something else going on there? And for the most part, Sophia seems, um, you know, she's, she's the new kid and she befriends Barbara, you know, and she, she clearly doesn't have any friends. And, and although she gives off that, I don't need any friends vibe, clearly when the opportunity's there, she, she takes it. But she did screw her over, <laughs> you know. She did. She did point the bullies in the direction of where all the, you know, precious stuff was. And so, I haven't figured out yet emotionally whether I forgive her for that because I think it was a pretty shitty move, to be honest. No, I agree. But the only defense I can have for Sophia is I think Sophia is pretty loyal, and it's during the fight scene with Taylor. So in the comic, there's uh, this, the bully, the head of the bullies, Taylor. And she's, this mm-hmm. is, I think, one of the best drawn characters because Barbara's this slight, you know, you know, big eyed, wears glasses. She's got big ears on or a hat and she's just kind of this slight little um, character. She's really kind of quite small. And then Taylor is drawn. Sometimes she fills an entire panel. She's this <laughs> big monstrous bully. And it's a lovely contrast. But then in the fight scene, when, um, when Barbara and Taylor are fighting, and Barbara's actually getting, getting better than she should have for being a little yep. scrapper. And when she turns around and she punches Sophia in the face, and that's when Sophia turns on her. And she is new. She's known Barbara for all of two weeks. 
Yeah. Um, she's weird. And now she punched her. So not to say, but I get what you're saying because you're looking at it from Barbara's perspective. So how dare you, you little shit? Why would you? <laughs> yeah, that's fair. But she even says, doesn't she, that um, I think when the, the bully confronts her and she says, you know, she hit you and she said, oh, it was an accident. So that's what makes me, because initially I was thinking the same. I was thinking, well, okay, if she thinks genuinely she's turned around and, and been smacked on purpose, but she seems to make an excuse for her as well. So again, I need to go back and read it again to really solidify what, what do I think about that character? Because obviously she goes through that kind of arc, doesn't she? She starts off being the friend. There's a bit of a double cross because she feels like she, she's been hit. But then she comes good. She's a, a good friend at the end of it. It's just that middle bit. I need to go back. <laughs> that's fair. I think that's fair. What do you think about Sophia, Chris? As I said before, Tony, I think one thing I would say, her character's far more relatable in the movie, even though I think the, the graphic novel does a better job of, of telling the whole overall story. And, and I think Dave's probably right. She, she's... I couldn't work out why she sold a friend down the river all of a sudden. I know they had a dust up in that, but she had no, well, she had a lot of issues with Taylor herself. What you could see Taylor's just a horrible, typical schoolyard bully. I mean, she was literally just Biff Tannen out back to That's the right. future. Really. Yeah. Yeah. She's got, I was thinking crew. like Bluto and Popeye. You know, oh, Bluto Bluto was just Popeye, huge, that's good wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. He yeah. <laughs> was actually, yeah. But Popeye had his spinach, Dave, so you're right. But but yeah, yeah it's, it's just a cliche, in it? Even, and I must admit, when I, when I was reading it and, and visualising and watching it, it reminded me so much at times of Peter Parker and Flash. You know, like that story Flash of, of Thompson, the bullet. Yeah, 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 just following him round the school. And I have read the odd Spider-Man comic and that. And, and I know the art style is like, but it... It has beats of that, doesn't it? It's the typical cliche bully, which is not a bad thing. She needs to be there to progress the story. She, you know, Barbara needs that foil to become what she is and have, have that belief in herself because she's got all these things stacking up against her. She needs something as an out. And I think it's the story's great. And, and Taylor, to be fair, is a good character in it. She's just horrible. <laughs> exactly horrible. Exactly. You, right. Biff, Biff it is funny. To see, oh, sorry, Dave. <laughs> go ahead. No, I was just saying exactly like Biff, you know, yeah. absolutely horrible bully, but brilliant. <laughs> it is. And that's what's interesting in a story where literally uh, the main character sees fairies and she, she fights giants. I mean, there's, there's some pretty amazing artwork here where there's actual giants that she has to fight. And the biggest mm. bully, that, like, there's, but there's still a personification of this. And I think... That's what. That's why the the art is so genius because she is so big. She is big like Biff, and it is that contrast between you know the first time you mentioned that when you first see Marty go against Biff, you're like, well, how can he beat him? And yeah. when you see um, when you see Barbara on on panel with Taylor, there's zero chance. You give her zero chance, but she um, it is an excellent metaphor, and and that's the beautiful thing I think about comics. And I, I think Flash is a great um, villain. I think of all of the things that Peter faces in his life, Flash is the worst. So I think that was, that's, a, that's really smart, Chris. I think that's true. Because it's like, oh, Green Goblin, all this other shit is fine. But this asshole at school, yeah. I cannot get away from him. So that, the reality that life is going to kick you no matter what, kind of. And you have to. I, yeah. do, I do have to spoil it for you, though, Chris. But Flash turns into Venom in the comics. Yeah. 
He does. <laughs> I think. Well, actually, I think, yeah, you say that, Dave. I think. Was, I think he did that in the comics as well. In the comics, in the uh, cartoon, did he? I could be wrong. Did he? Oh, in the nineties. Anime. In the nineties, he might. Oh, right. I, might I, I might be wrong. I remember that. I've not. I, I'll be honest. I did not watch that. But that no, would be good so if they that. actually did that. But I might but, be wrong, Dave. It might be something you've already said. But it's yeah, it was, it was a more recent run. And uh, ah, right, okay. Flash Thompson goes off. So, so when he's really bullied, Peter Parker is, is, is in high school. But Flash's story, he goes off um, in the army and stuff. And he, he ends up getting his legs blown off. And uh, so they introduce a symbiote to him. And he becomes this like hero Venom. Ah, but, right, okay. Not a dick all... Venom. And not the Tom Hardy Venom. Totally not the Tom Hardy Venom, Venom no. Yeah. He, was, he was the uh, original. That's right. The OG, the O villain. That's yeah. it, yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right, well, let me ask you guys this. I mean, we keep dancing about it, so let's just deal with this with uh, art in general. And I know, so this is a black and white comic. Um, it is wordy. There, there is definitely a lot of words. It's not Claremont wordy. But there's definitely a lot of, it's, it is uh, dialogue heavy. But I wonder, you know, if you just handed this to someone, and that to me this is, a, um, I think, a testament to what makes a comic book or a graphic novel good. If you just handed it to someone who couldn't really read very well, how do you think the story is told visually? Do you think that Ken Nomura tells the story well enough, um, or, or is he really totally relying on, you know, on just the, just the you know, word bubbles? What are your thoughts, Chris? Uh, for me, it's got a very good point, actually, Tony, because it took me a while to get used to what I was reading and following the page for the simple reason. I'm used to, obviously, old-school bubble text with the extended sort of pointy triangle to the mouth type thing. So you have a direction. With this one, you have to sort of uh, oval-type shape, but then you've got a weird black line. But because of the art style of the actual whole novel, there's a load of black lines and that the way it's drawn, it's drawn like it's an incomplete panel. So at times I did, I did struggle to, when there was a lot of dialogue on the screen to understand who was talking next and who was actually saying what they should be saying. And it did take me a couple of takes. So I am a complete novice when it comes to comics and graphic novels. I, and obviously I know, uh, you know, I'm in my forties now, but even so I do think that someone who's never been into comics may find it a bit too busy. How, if you're an experienced comic book reader like you guys are, I don't know whether that's the norm, but I've never, I've never come across it where it's, it's, it was quite difficult to find out who was speaking at times. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it reads like a more modern comic, so I didn't find it wordy at all. But again, it comes with from that baggage of going, going back to the Claremont days. I mean, I must admit, after taking that break from comics... And then going back to the Claremont stuff, I was like, Jesus Christ, I don't actually <laughs> remember this many words. I mean, those are dense. You know, it takes you ages to get through, you know, a single issue. Whereas now you pick up a, a copy of X-Men or one of the 15 other titles that they've got and you can breeze through it in like five, 10 minutes. So I, I found it more breezy to, to go through in terms of like how much dialogue there was. But in terms of the storytelling, I think the artwork is fantastic. And I think, so, so actually just to, just to diverge to another one that we might talk about um, at some point in the future, but I've just read uh, Grant Morrison's We Three. Oh, I've not read that. Um, I, I would recommend it. 
Okay. Uh, but there is for Grant Morrison, and the artwork is by Frank Quietly. Um, the storytelling is almost all visual. At different points, there's there's dialogue through it, but it is so clever. Like the, it's almost like a, if it was a movie or a TV show. It's it's what the director's doing. It's changing those perspectives, you know, switching the camera angles round and and. I just thought it was fantastic the way the way it told the story again, given the different perspectives. Again, going back to the manga comments, it felt a little bit manga in in some of that art style. But no, I, th I thought it was, it, the, the artist did a brilliant job on this. Yeah, I think that what I love about it is, um, the, and I think you're talking about like he he draws it like it's a camera. There's a few scenes like when 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 Sophia and Barbara first meet. Um, you know, it's a stand. It's a it's a standalone page, um, mm -hmm. in there. So the background is there, and they're kind of um, centered. And there's just you know, what are you playing or whatever she says. I can look specifically, but it's like a real simple place. Are you playing a game? Is what Sophia says to her. And it's this, the the way that Barbara's looking up at her, and the way that Sophia's eyes are completely gone because she's smiling so big. And so even if you didn't know what those words were at the top, like everything about that is there. And I think the whole book does that. And with Chris, what you mentioned, um, where the words get scribbled out later, you know, that, that choice, yeah. whether that was um, Joe Kelly or Ken Nomura to make that choice, I'm sure it was in Kelly's original script to do that. But the way that it was done and the way that the, it was like scratched, like the, you know, almost like right through, uh, right through the page, like you could almost feel it viscerally. And I think, um, I think the choice to go black and white and to do a lot of visual storytelling where you're right, Chris, if you're not, if you haven't read it a lot before, it is sometimes, um, especially like when they're playing Dungeons and Dragons, there's like six people talking on the panel. Yeah. You, have, you have no idea who's saying yeah. it, but I still think just by looking at the body language that he draws, like he's mad, he's bugged, she's this, you know, you could just see it even if you don't know what the words were. Um, and to me, that's like the, that's, even though this is a very powerful moving story, I don't know how it would have worked in color and I don't know how it would have worked with a different, you know, more traditional comic writer. That's a great point to be honest, Tony. Yeah. What do you think yeah. about the fact that it's not color, Dave? Did that bug you at all? I never, I never quite know what to make of the old black and white because again, when I, when I think back to, I mentioned at the top of the show, going back to those 2000 AD, I think that was more of a, um, an economic thing <laughs> you know it's just you can churn out comics don't color them you know but it does artistically give it something a bit different again i i think of something another image comic like the walking dead which is black and white what if they made that color would it add to it or take it away i still honestly haven't made my mind up on that i think to be honest with with this, I think the color might have added something. Now, someone might explain to me why it, it didn't. They've obviously made that choice. I mean, color colorists are, are highly undervalued, I think, in the in the comics industry. But you know, I, I can't imagine it costs that much. You know, and Joe Kelly's a, a well-known writer. I'm pretty sure he, he'd have had the budget to do that. So it's obviously that artistic choice, and I think it's because it's such a kind of macabre. Uh, subject matter that they've probably gone for that sort of take on it. I think that's right. I think uh, that that makes a lot of sense because of the uh, the the story, the point of the story having um, having it in color. And I don't know if if um, 
the Giants would be as scary in color. And I know that doesn't make mm. sense. Like you'd think, oh, if they were in color, you could see like they'd be red and brown and they'd and some, but I don't know, to me, when you see the Giants, especially the Titan at the end, um, that's like terrifying. And I don't know if, I don't, I just don't know. I don't know. What do you think, Chris, about the color? I, it didn't even, I didn't even cross my mind, to be honest. Not, not at all. I, I didn't, I, I think it tells a great story as it is. I think it would have ruined the style if they'd been reds or blues, greens on. It just wouldn't have made anything. I don't think it made this as impactful, to be honest. And I, I suppose, I know it's not stupid this, but I used to read a newspaper panel for years. There's one that, it's an old school uh, British one. And there's one that used to be uh, called Handicap Day, which, you know, it's, it's like a oh, yeah. three, or, three or four. It's one of the oldest ones, actually. But it's, it's three or four panels, and that was always in black and white. And then I think they moved to colour at one point. And then I used to read one. There's two Scottish ones I've mentioned before. One was called R. Woolley, and the other one was called The Bruins about a family. And the whole thing was in black and white. And it never, ever crossed my mind that it wasn't in colour. And I used to buy the annuals, the, the yearly annuals of them. I never used to read them because they were in like a Scottish newspaper. But the whole daily goings on would be a full year's worth of a, a comic, sort of like a graphic novel, big, a big one. Comic strips. A comic strips, yeah. I've got them yeah. upstairs. I've still got them upstairs, actually. Uh, from when I was a kid, I've got a couple of them still. But yeah, I, it never bought. I think it was great. I absolutely think it was great. And watching the movie sort of simultaneously playing parallels sort of within the space of a few days. Yeah, it tells a slightly different story in the movie. But I think, the, again, I go back to what I said. I still think the panel is better. I think, I think it just makes complete sense, to be honest. Do you not think? I mean, I, I, I'm always cautious because I always think it sounds so pretentious. You know, when someone says, oh, the book was so much better than the movie. <laughs> Hey, you know, I, just, I'm an English teacher to married to a librarian. We <laughs> say that all the time. That's fair. Yeah. Don't worry. <laughs> so I hesitate to say it, but I have to say in this case, it is absolutely true. And, and it's not like you have to read some thousand page prose novel. Like I say, it might seem a little bit wordy, but I think it's, it's still fairly breezy for me. I, I, I don't know exactly what, those emotional triggers are i do think that probably if they added the color in it would give it more of a fantastical feel about it you know if it especially if it was bright coloring and so that that would take away from the kind of emotional resonance that the story has later on so yeah i, d I don't know but I, I just know whatever they did it worked. <laughs> it worked. Yeah, it's worthy of all the awards. Well, let's do that. Let's talk about that. We keep dancing around it. So um, ultimately what happens is, is you finally discover all those words that have been crossed out is that um, Barbara's mother is actually upstairs in their house and Barbara's afraid to go upstairs and she's kind of built a camp in her basement um, uh, that is probably pretty disgusting. It's hinted at that she doesn't really, she's not very hygienic and um, nothing more gross than a non-hygienic 12-year-old. Um, and uh, so she is uh, hiding out because their father's gone and their mother is um, gravely ill living in the top floor of their home. And so you eventually find out that that's what the giants are, that, that Barbara is convinced if she can save Long Island and the town from, from giants that her mother will live. And um, she ultimately has a battle with a giant titan at the end and she says out loud to the Titan, I'm going to stop you, and so she'll live. And she says to Mrs. Molay during one of their um, 
session, she's like, I can beat death. And so that's the ultimate climax that you learn. Um, as you mentioned earlier, Dave, you know, she's an unreliable narrator. And this is when that turns, when the, now we know what's really happening. There's no more crossed out words. Um, and that, that's what she's trying to do. So that's the turn. So what did you guys think when you got to that moment, when you finally made that realization? Chris, you go first. I thought it was really good. Really good, Tony. I think what's interesting, and I'm sorry, Dave, but I'm going to have to pull you up. I've always wanted to say the book reads better than the movie. And I've never been able to say it because I have no attention span and no patience. I would, I would rather play a computer game of some sorts, as you know, a big game or watch a movie. And that's a whole pretense of comics in motion. But this played into Dave. I have never said the book is better than the movie, but I'm saying it this time because it is. I just think when you get that whole reveal, the movie doesn't explain it very well, I don't think, because I came away wondering whether it was in a head or it was, it was actually a fantasy, uh, you know, fantasy movie, uh, very much with the sort of, you know, the, in the Marvel sort of thing and all that. Uh, great. I think it was great, Tony. I, th- I think the one thing I would say was quite interesting was the, the way the grave setting was, there was no names in any of the tombs and that, but it was very, very eerie, just that one panel of that. And what you were saying about the colour, the one thing they maybe could have done with the colour, once the mum's funeral was out of the way and she went back to school, maybe that could have all been in colour because she's come out of the dark side of the depression of the uh, this big cloud that's looming over her life. Maybe, I don't know whether it would have made any difference to the story, but that could have been more logical way to use colour. That would have been like a Wizard of Oz kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, without the red shoes. That would have been yeah. pretty amazing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, just an idea, just an idea. I don't know if it, they might have even <laughs> thought of that and then thought, no, we can't rip off Wizard of Oz, but it, <laughs> yeah. it probably could have worked, this one. Yeah. Nice. Dave, what did you think about the turn? Oh, it's brilliant. And again, I, I completely agree with Chris. And I, I do have to say, because we haven't spoken about this on the on the movie and TV reviews much, but the original premise for Comics in Motion was for me to watch, you know, I, I was coming from the comic book side. Chris was a big fan of like the uh, characters, you know, the superheroes and stuff. And so uh, to actually get to where we've got to here, where Chris is waxing lyrical about the book, is job done, mission accomplished. <laughs> well, don't stop now, now that we're doing this. Now. <laughs> no, I must admit, and, and it's not always the case. So, so the last movie we reviewed was Blade 2. And I have to say that's completely the opposite. Movies are better than the original source material, to be quite honest. That's so true. It, it, it's not always one or the other. I just, I just think it's really interesting. I think, though, and I think this is where it hit me, is that page turner. So, again, I guess, Chris, you're more used to the kind of uh, symmetrical panels, like the nine panels on a page. But the artwork through the years, you know, it's evolved so much, and you get those real splash pages. And sometimes they, they can be a bit cliche. But I think this one, with that whole reveal that it is the mother filling out the whole page and a lot of it is just black and dark and initially certainly when she's not confronting her fears actually i think the moment where i was really like okay come on dave i'm a man hold it together hold it together was actually when you know she actually went into her mother and you can tell and again that's the moment where you're thinking as a parent 
you know, she must have been really missing Barbara. And I, I was close to breaking down, to be yeah, honest. I did. I, I, I openly acknowledge that I did. This, this was just a kick in the gut. But, and it's weird for me to be like, okay, let's have our first new fun show be about this, this comic that is, you know, touching and sad. But what I also think, I would submit, it is actually pretty full of hope. Um, when Barbara goes missing, um, she fights the Titan. The Titan says, I'm not here for her. I'm here for you. And that, and she, and they have the final battle and she saves Sophia and she even saves Taylor, um, which, you know, screw her, but it's fine. You know, I understand Barbara's trying to save everyone. Um, and then Barbara's missing for, and, and because it was such a, a gut wrenching thing. And then I was ready. I, when the first time I read it, I was like, well, Barbara's missing. That's he's going to do it. I mean, this is image comics. He can go ahead and kill a 12 year old if he wants to. Um, <laughs> And then she comes back, and I think in that moment, and what you're saying, Chris, about the end after the mom dies and there's the funeral, and um, like having hope, like Barbara smiles, and uh, she doesn't smile much. She scowls a lot, and her even her ears, which are just her hat, they'll droop when she's in a, even a, you know, like her <laughs> hat moves with yeah. her mood. And at the end, the ears are up. And I think it is really full of hope. Like she did have to battle this. I mean, she's a child. We're seeing this horrific event through the eyes of a, of a young child who can't wrap her mind around what's happening to her mother. So it truly is a monster. And if she can beat the monster, she can, she can beat, you know, an illness. And um, so I think it was just such a hopeful ending, even though the mo- mom still dies and that's tragic, but, but because Barbara comes through it a better person, um, it is still really hopeful. And um, that then, you know, gets you again, you finally get calmed down and then you, you get to the end when Sophia's like, and then she fought a Titan and you're like, ah, oh! You get me a second time, you know? So that's how I felt about it. I don't know. What, do you, what did you think, Dave, about that final, the final end after the mom goes, were you, or did you think Barbara was going to come back from the Titan battle? Did, did you ever get faked out at that? Or were you like, ah, she's coming back? Well, Chris, Chris asked me, actually. He said, he said, is it all in her head or is it real? And I was like, I think it's mostly in her head but it's still left a little bit open. It's still a little bit ambiguous where it could be one or the other. And again, I I think that those are the thoughts that you have after you put the book down. You're like, well, again, some of the things that that happened, how could they have happened? Like the whole storm and stuff, you know, they kind of, okay, it could be in her head, but was it really? And when she was, when she disappeared, where, where was she gone all that time? You know? So I, it had me thinking, to be honest. I, I was like, yeah, I'm somewhere between 80 to 90% it's in her head. But the remaining 10 or 20, it could actually be a bit real as well. Yeah. Running at a tornado with a, with a little tiny toy hammer that you made with a thumbtack <laughs> and a toothbrush, probably not a great choice. Not a great life choice. Yeah. She did, she did a better job than Kevin Costner in Man of Steel anyway, didn't she? <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. Jonathan, Jonathan Kent didn't have anything going there, did he? But yeah, yeah, no, he did not. You're, you are correct. What did you think, Chris? Did you think that when you were reading it, and I know you'd already seen the movie, but by this point you realize, oh, it's quite a bit different. Uh, when you get to that end, um, Barbara's missing for like 12 hours. What did you think about that? Well, I think the, the, the one thing, like I say, hindsight's a wonderful thing. Watching the movie, I, I wish I'd read it first for the simple reason that Taylor obviously gets into a brawl with Barbara then she sees the the giant. But in the movie, we don't allude to that at all. It's all that's why the movie played out. It was all in Barbara's head. That's why I asked Dave the question. 
Um, interesting. I still think the Giants are real because Barbara saw it. I just couldn't figure that out. And I was, I was like, but no, it's in her head. I, I don't get it. So he still left me with a lot of questions, but yeah, I still enjoyed it. It was, it was interesting. An interesting thing to pick, really, Tony, as well, especially knowing my background of having no patience to read comics, really. <laughs> a really, really interesting one to do. And, and I applaud it, really, because you could have gone down the cliche route with a lot of stuff. And I know it, it, mainly indie comics you're going to be doing, but you could have just picked a generic superhero to go with Tony. So, no, it, great. it was a great read, honestly. It really, really was. Excellent. Well, so here's the, here's the final question I'll be asking every week is, who do you... So you, you get to hand this to somebody. Who do you hand it to? So, Dave, you'd said you'd hand it to every fifth grader in America or England or the world. But if you had to just hand it to one person, who's the person you'd hand it to? So my daughter is 14. And so she's approaching an interesting time in her life when uh, you have all the answers and all the world are idiots, but also, you know, <laughs> you're kind of moving from that Disney age into an adult world, you know, and, and to be honest, she hasn't had to deal with trauma really in her life, you know, and, and touch wood, I hope she doesn't for a long time now, but I think approaching young adults in and around that kind of 14 16 age bracket where you can introduce them through a narrative about someone else you know again god forbid you know you 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 always want to protect your kids don't you you don't want them to experience trauma so you kind of want them to learn lessons without having to deal with it harshly themselves so to actually go through a story like this of someone who's experiencing real trauma I mean we say it's hopeful it absolutely is because Barbara comes out of it strong but essentially you know and we all have to deal with death don't we in the west we don't deal with death very well we kind of push it off to the side and and don't accept it so I think if I was to hand it to one person it would be my 14 year old daughter who strangely has got into, um, oh, what is it? <sighs> they did Black Parade. Gerard Way was the lead singer. Oh, My Chemical Romance. My Chemical Romance. So they've just got back together and she's massively into them, which, is, which for me is a little bit, a bit weird, you know, because I, I was quite into them the first time round and she's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, all into my chemical romance i'm like all right you're 14 aren't you okay right okay <laughs> are we going to be a goth or an emo soon so <laughs> yeah nice that's an ex that's an excellent choice i would say chris who would you hand this to if you could only hand it to one person i think i think dave's right I, i'd probably go with my daughter mainly she might be able to relate to it now and go you know at certain points that that was me more for the isolation within school not the trauma. I mean, she had a, she had some trauma around that time. She lost her, um, my wife's father. That really impacted her. So, um, and that was what was that four years ago this year. So she was about four to fifteen then. She was still at school. So yeah, something like that. I think Tony, interesting read. And, and I think Dave's right. That, that really, this is the sort of stuff that when you're in what's classed as year seven in the UK, I'm not sure. So eleven years old, Tony. I don't know what what grade that would be in in the US, but. Um, 
it'd be interesting for them to read it and take it on board in an English lesson. And then segue off into, if anybody's having anything that you can relate to with this, we do have this support mechanism for you. Because I think it's quite an educational piece as well. That if people don't want to speak up, maybe by reading something visual like this and, and relating to Barbara, they might be able to, you know, it helps a couple of people just speak up and say, look, I'm struggling or anything. Because you just don't know, do you, what people are going through? Mental health is a massive thing. So I'm really, really, really into this. I'd recommend it to quite a lot of people. Excellent. Well, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah, actually, there's a um, Patrick Ness did a book uh, called uh, Monster Calls, which was a, it's very similar to this. Um, it, he actually finished it with Siobhan Dowd. Uh, she passed away while she was writing it. And um, my, our oldest daughter is a special ed teacher. We actually got her a copy of that. And I actually think I failed because I didn't get her a copy of this. So um, <laughs> I definitely want get, to get this in her hands because I think you know, she works at an elementary school. Um, yeah. And, you know, like K through six. So I think there's definitely some, you know, we, we're trying to build up a classroom library where just like you said, oh, you don't know what somebody's going through and you never know when you hand somebody a book like this where you could be like, oh, you know, this might be, this might be just what you need. Yeah, I think so. I mean, let's face it, right? When you're a, a young teenager, everyone feels isolated over something. I don't think the, the all that I've learned, Tony, about the American school system is from movies. So, you know, I know <laughs> okay. you've got the jocks, you've got you know, the rockers probably, or maybe maybe not so that much that anymore. But They're emos now, yeah. Got emos, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, but each of them is dealing with their own little shitstorm. Even the popular kids, you know, you can be in a room full of people and still feel alone. And and I think honestly, in in my lifetime, I've I've seen a gradual progression where we can talk more about this stuff. Uh, uh, we've still got a massive way to go, and I do think books like this help drive that conversation. You know, so if you if you're going through this, like you say, in a um, in a classroom setting, you know, you read a read an issue, and then it's like, okay, well, so Barbara's ignoring all the people that say you know, she's clearly feeling feeling isolated why do you think she's seeing what she's seeing or I, I think it just opens up that conversation and helps us to you know help people talk about what's going on in their head yeah and I think the one thing that stops it um unfortunately is what in the movie they actually Joe Kelly wrote the script for the movie and I know we'll get to that too but um yep. he made an edit for what Barbara says to the gym teacher in the uh, comic, okay. Barbara uses some um, homophobic slurs to get her gym teacher's attention. And in the movie, she does not. And so that, I think, is that one panel. And maybe he realized that and made, you know, made a course correction. Um, and I get why Barbara does it. And I get why he included it in the comic. Um, but I also think like something like that is what's going to keep, you know, keep it out of a classroom, unfortunately, you know, is like as a, as a lesson. Like if it's on the teacher's library then any kid can take it and the teacher can have that conversation mm. but if you're like handing it out you know and it's unfortunate you know i mean to me the fact that barbara says that and does that makes you want to have that conversation even more like why would barbara say that to her gym teacher she clearly likes sports she clearly has no problem she's athletic why would she say something so horrible have you ever done that you know and so i think that would lead to a really excellent conversation 
Yeah, I'm trying to think back. I can't actually remember what that slur was, but you know, I mean, we we went back on the on the VHS podcast and watched Ghostbusters, and Ugh. Peter Peter Venkman is a massive sex pest, and we still he all is. watch that, don't we? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm done. I watched that once. I think I said to you guys, I think that aged about as well as spoiled milk under your car seat. Um, <laughs> we yeah. got so much abuse because we we slated that, but I do still maintain. But go back and watch it, and he is a massive sex fan. He's awful. He's garbage. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. true. It's totally true. All right. Well, thank you guys for being on the pilot show. I hope, you know, I'm sure we'll get better as we go along. My first foray into this. I appreciate it. So um, why don't you guys tell everybody where they can find you guys when you're not on this show? Chris. Well, Obviously, we have a few podcasts, Tony. Um, we have a one VHS Strikes Back, where myself and Dave go back from the mid-2000s back all the way to the 70s, I think. And we review all sorts of classic movies and some not-so-classic movies. And me and Dave, it's turned out, actually just like to outdo each other with what movie can be worse for the other one to watch. And we sort of have this perverted... Um, way of knowing that well i'm watching a movie that dave loves and i absolutely hate it sort of gives dave a lot of enjoyment and vice versa tony i love it i love it because dave has put me through so many dodgy movies with the comics emotion so if you're into that guys we are available all podcast hosting sites vhs strikes back and we do do a couple other podcasts which i'm going to pass over to my co-host tony Okay. <laughs> well, obviously, if you're listening to this, you're listening on the Comics in Motion podcast. You'll find myself and Chris will be going through with Tony the I Kill Giants movie as well. So that'll drop this Sunday. Um, the next week, we're going to be looking at the new Birds of Prey movie as well, which has Harley Quinn in it, which is a bit weird, but for the Birds of Prey comic fans. But uh, anyway, so yeah, we're, we're going to probably, because Comics in Motion is going to expand out, we'll probably have to think about rebranding that Comics in Motion movies and TV or something like that. But typically we'll always pick out a movie or a TV show and uh, and run through that and, and have a few laughs on the way. Well, I but, appreciate you guys letting me be part of the feed. Um, I am very excited. And so if you want to tweet at me, at Tricycle Boombox, all one word. Uh, if you have any thoughts on I Kill Giants, the comic, uh, Chris and Dave, you can get them at Comics in Motion P on Twitter. And uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this. And by all means, reach out to us and let us know. Uh, rate the show and the podcast catcher. Get everybody out there. Tell your friends. Say, hey, you guys should listen to Comics in Motion, uh, especially into Comic Spotlight. I hear that's pretty amazing. So, <laughs> and it is. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I have no idea what it'll sound like. It's the first episode. Thank you guys for letting me do this. Thank you, Tony. All right. Cheers. See everybody next week. Bye Take now. Care. And I want to end the show with a song by the band Naked and Famous, inspired by I Kill Giants, aptly named I Kill Giants. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the first show.
He has erased